Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here. As always, today we have on a fun guest, James Olson, who is the former chief of counterintelligence at the CIA. He also has authored a couple books. One we're going to chat about is called To Catch a Spy. He also has one called Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying. This was a fun convo. Uh, I love talking about spies and all that kind of stuff. And so I hope you enjoy Oh, by the way, support the show, warroommedia.com. You can sign up for free, or if you want to support, this is a listener-supported show. Until I get that Rogan money, you can do that there as well. Without further ado, here is my conversation with James Olson. Well, Jim, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you, Ryan. You know, a few months ago, I interviewed Marty Peterson, and I told her at the time, to my knowledge, it was the first time I've ever spoken to a spy. I'm sure I'd run across others, um, but now I've had on uh, Marty, uh, Jack Barsky, yourself, and some others. Now I'm getting a little paranoid. There's spies everywhere. <laughs> there are spies everywhere, and that's why so much of my career was spent as a spy catcher. Uh, we haven't caught them all yet. That's very frustrating because we got to do a much better job of counterintelligence. Oh, well, you know, it's, it's so you have... Um, You've got a couple of books out. One, uh, The Catch a Spy, we're going to talk about. And also, one called Fair Play, which came out, I think, in 2006-ish somewhere. The Moral Dilemmas of Spying. One of the things that I appreciate about the spy thrillers, right? So the fictional, over-the-top, Mitch Rapp, James Bond, whoever it might be, um, books is, if they're done well and the reader does it well, it allows the reader to examine the ethics of spying in this bombastic, sensational way that's not really happening without actually having to deal with the real world implications. And so like if there's a, a torture scene or they break a law to catch someone, the reader has the opportunity to engage in the ethics of whether or not they would agree with that. And, and so um, oftentimes what it feels like in the, in the spy world, because it's out of sight, out of mind, the only time the general public really gets an opportunity to, to examine the ethics of what they think about it is when something's gone almost horribly wrong. So maybe from your perspective, how through your career, we think about ethics and law and morals, how did you go about trying to balance those things? Well, it's a really uh, difficult issue. And just one I think about a lot. That's why I wrote the book, Fair Play. I didn't think that we were examining closely enough the moral dimensions of what we were doing in the intelligence community. In training, we never came up. It was just assumed that we would use the same techniques against the Russians, <clears throat> excuse me, that they were using against us. You know, uh, basically anything goes. And when we moved into the war on terror, we faced some options that really raised some serious ethical questions. I really wanted to acquaint the readers to the fact that these issues are out there and also to invite them to reflect on what kind of country we are, what kind of country we want to be. Are we a country that's going to use targeted killings? Are we going to use waterboarding? Are we going to do kidnappings? Are we going to use seduction? You know, a lot of various issues pop up. I had no trouble coming up with 50 moral issues <laughs> we face in the world of spying. And I encourage the readers to make their own decisions on what is morally acceptable and what is morally unacceptable 
specifically as we fight the war on terror, but it applies to intelligence work in general. It's a moral minefield out there, Ryan, and we need to think about it. Yeah, and you, you get into, there, there's so many layers and tears to it. And so you, you mentioned the transition of the enemy, and it reminds me of Eugene's sledge with, I think it's his book, With the Old Breed. It could be uh, Helmet for My Pillow. But in, anyways, in one of those World War II novel, uh, not novels, uh, his uh, memoirs, they're talking about just going through fighting the Japanese and how the Japanese were killing U.S. soldiers. Of course, it's war. And then what they were doing to the body. Uh, after they were dead and how it enraged them and so then at, at various points the u.s soldiers would retaliate maybe not on the same level but probably more than the average american would have been and you stop and all those guys are, are, are dead and gone now so you kind of stop and go wow what should the commanders have done how do we think about this is it an eye for an eye especially in this category um are the ethics gone? It's war. You're killing people. And so it, it allows you to, to stop and to ask these questions that, that don't get asked. And, and then you, you take about the, the um, just the physical and mental toll of what those men were going through, uh, especially in the, the Pacific theater and, and all that. So I, I can, I can see how going from a different combatant to a different combatant and trying to figure out how to match the level of what they're bringing to the fight, right? So if you're in a combat sport or something where it's just a fist fight, you've got to match the level of intensity or skill of the person, or they're going to beat you. And so in the espionage world, I'm assuming if the Russians, just pick a name, are willing to do this, this, and this, there has to be a concern that if you don't do that, that, and that as well, they're going to beat you. Is that, a, is that kind of how you guys would think about stuff? That's a very good point. Uh, <clears throat> we've got to fight tough. You know, our adversaries uh, don't play by any rules whatsoever. You're talking about terrorists. You're talking about the Russians. <clears throat> and so uh, the question is how tough? You know, the starting point is, is that we cannot go out there like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and uh, with our hands tied behind our back and expect to prevail against these kinds of enemies. Uh, they're too tough. But at the same time, we can't become them. You know, we are different. In fact, I consider the United States the, the most moral intelligence apparatus in the world. Uh, other countries don't have this debate. <clears throat> they don't have moral constraints on what they do. Uh, if it protects their people, uh, if it advances their interests, they do it. No second thoughts. So at least we are debating. We are having a, a good faith discussion on how far we can go. <clears throat> In essence, how dirty can we get our hands? So when you think about ethics, um, you have to be careful to let a majority rule mentality sway ethics, right? Because in China um, or Russia, the ethics and the majority ethics would be different than the U.S. And the U.S. ethics, would, we're going to shift over time. How do you go about determining what is ethical? Uh, because that's also a problem. Well, the first thing I, I would like to emphasize is that we should not, in the intelligence community, making the, make the rules ourselves. Mm. You know, we're too close to it. Mm. We're too prone to overzealousness. We believe in what we're doing. And we're not answerable to the American people. And so the people who should set the guidelines, establish the regulations, are our elected officials. So it should come from the White House. It could, should come from the Congressional Oversight Committees. They're the people who should step up and say, all right, you and CIA, you in the military, you in the FBI can go this far, but no farther. 
The problem, Ryan, is they re are reluctant to do that. You know, particularly in Congress, no congressman really wants to has, have his or her name on a bill or any document that could be used by political adversaries later showing that they condoned torture, that they condoned kidnapping, that they condoned targeted killings. So one reason I wrote that book was they've got to step up and meet their responsibilities and, and give us where that line is drawn. And unfortunately, in many cases, they haven't done that. The reality <clears throat> that I experienced in my career was too often this. The policymakers tell us, okay, you CIA, go out there and you recruit terrorists and you thwart future attacks against America. You save American lives. But if you don't, if you fail, then we're going to declare an intelligence fate. We're going to hold you professionally, in some cases, personally responsible. And then they add, sitting back in the comfort of Washington, D.C., oh, by the way, we're not going to tell you what the rules are. <laughs> but we right. reserve the right after the fact to say you went too far. I've got colleagues in the CIA who were notified by the Justice Department. They were targets of prosecution for things they did in good faith on active duty. So that's not fair. It's not fair. And... and I'm reminded of kind of the the water you mentioned waterboarding earlier, um, and kind of what the Bush administration did for that, which is you get a bunch of lawyers, you get a bunch of legal interpretations, and then there's if I remember correctly, there's not really a ruling on it. It's more of legal opinions are kind of said that we think this is okay, therefore go do it. And then when it blows up, it's like, well, well, you know, who is actually at fault there is it the person waterboarding is waterboarding right or wrong you can have the debate but if it is just to say it is wrong for this case well is it the person that that was told by the top level officials it's okay um it, i'm very much sympathetic to what you're saying which is no one wants to take accountability and so it makes it quite hard but the the other side of, the, of that is the the government as a whole has this very much veiled uh veiled secrecy over it and so you know, there's everything's always classified, even silly lunch meetings. And so it makes it very hard to get these discussions out in the open because this, you could say the CIA is overly protective of secrets, which makes it hard for the, the public to weigh in on these things. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but, you know, we are an open democracy. <clears throat> and I believe the American people should have a voice. They should participate through the electoral process, if nothing else, in establishing the, the ground rules. You know, the military, <clears throat> I sometimes uh, envy because they have international conventions. They have rules of engagement. They know how far they can go. <clears throat> they know what techniques they can use. In the intelligence world, it's not that clear. You know, that's a plus and a minus. We can do things in the intelligence community that the military cannot do. And that's a very useful uh, for presidents to have that option available to them. But at the same time, we should not be completely out there as renegades. We should not be uh, totally unaccountable. Uh, but again, I will appeal to the Congress and the White House to meet their responsibilities and set those rules for us. You know, if they don't, and they've not been good enough at it, our tendency to protect ourselves is to hang too far back. Mm. And that's not the best way, for example, to prosecute the war on terror. We should be fighting as tough as possible. We should be right up to that line. We won't go over it. 
but we should not be hanging too far back because that reduces our effectiveness. And if you tell us not to waterboard anymore, as one administration did, fine, we won't waterboard anymore, but you gotta tell us and you can't leave us in that gray area because that's, uh, that's not fair to us. It's not fair to uh, our country, American people. Uh, we need to have more clarity on what, uh, what we can do and what we can't do. Okay, one more just off the cuff question about the more dilemma aspect of things. You mentioned, um, you know, the U.S., the citizens, the Congress, the president. Um, what about international opinion? UN allies should they have any role in this conversation? Not much, in my opinion. You know, we serve the president of the United States. We are in the executive branch. You know, we are furthering the interests of the United States, and I would not be comfortable limiting our options to decrees, decisions made by some multinational body. No, uh, I want the decisions to be made inside our own country. And uh, that's th those are the rules I want to follow. Okay. I want to follow United Nations or some international convention. Unless the, the White House and the Congress apply those to us, then we will, of course, adhere to them. Okay. And so, as I mentioned, the book that you, your most recent book, uh, To Catch Us by the Art of Counterintelligence, it has something quite disturbing. It says the United, this is on Amazon's page, the United States is losing the counterintelligence war. And it goes on to list China, Russia, Cuba, which is shocking uh, for someone like myself, um, as, as some of the big threats here. How and why are we losing this war? Well, it's a fact. We are losing the counterintelligence war, Ryan, because our counterintelligence is being overwhelmed by assaults from foreign intelligence services. The Chinese, number one. Uh, Russians haven't gone away. Cubans are there. The Iranians, North Koreans, even our friends are stealing our secrets. And so we're hemorrhaging our, our secrets, our technology, our databases are under attack, and we're not keeping pace with that. It's a wake-up call uh, to catch a spy is my effort to inform the American people how bad this is and how important it is that we do, do the necessary to improve our counterintelligence because it's not good enough right now. Well, let, let's start with each country individually. Just kind of pick apart. So Cuba, you don't think of Cuba as a – okay, not you, me. I wouldn't think of Cuba as a counterintelligence threat. What, what threat do the Cubans pose? Well, I beg to differ because uh, the Cubans are a counterintelligence threat. Uh, they're the bane of my existence when I was in counterintelligence. Uh, one of the things I hated about the Cuban intelligence was they were so good. They were really very professional, very effective. And look at what they've done. Look at uh, Philip Agee. Look at Anna Montes. Look at Kendall and Gwendolyn Myers. Look at the Avispa network. The Cubans are at war with us. And when Castro died in 2016, I thought, oh, finally, okay, now this is the end of it. And Cuba will, like Eastern Europe, go into the path of democracy. It didn't happen. And um, the leadership of Cuba now, Miguel is just as Stalinist, just as focused on uh, intelligence operations in the United States as, as Castro ever was. But what, so what's your objective, though? What are they, why are they uh, attacking the U.S.? What are they trying to get from us? 
Well, they hate us because we are the dominant power. You know, we've imposed sanctions. We've made life difficult for them over the years. Um, so it's a vendetta against the United States. It starts way back when uh, Castro took power. Bay of Pigs didn't help. Cuban Missile Crisis didn't help. But there's a real animosity there. <clears throat> and uh, I respect them. Uh, they ran double agent operations against us that to this day infuriate me. Uh, they had us, they beat us, and I don't like to lose in counterintelligence. And uh, I'll be the first to admit that the, the Cubans uh, outsmarted us. <clears throat> What's a double their, agent operation? Their double agent operations were uh, better than our counterintelligence. And that's- but what, is that? what is that? What, what is a double agent operation? What does that mean? A double agent is when you think that you are running an agent in a country. Let me give an example. Uh, the way it would work with, uh, with the Cubans, for example. Uh, they would dangle a Cuban to US intelligence. And they would hope that we would bite, that we would grab at it, that we would recruit that Cuban. <clears throat> because we want Cuban sources. We're hungry for intelligence on Cuba. And the Cubans know that. They know how greedy we are. They know how hungry we are. And so they give us these, these things that they offer up to us. When we recruit them, then of course, they're under the control of the Cuban, at that time, the DGI, today the DI, and they run it against us. And they learn our MO. They learn what technology we're using. They get our requirements. They identify our personnel. They take our money. It's, uh, it's devastating. And they were very, very good at it. From the time that uh, this all started, <clears throat> the CIA thought that it had recruited 38 agents on island, 38 Cubans. And they were giving us chicken feed. But we were so eager to have Cuban sources that we accepted virtually no production. We just wanted to have the numbers. We wanted to have Cubans that we could say we had recruited. All 38 of the Cubans that we thought we'd recruited were doubled against us, were controlled by the KG, by the, uh, by the uh, DGI. Uh, and that's, uh, it's a black mark on US counterintelligence. Uh, we were too gullible. Uh, we were too easy. Uh, we didn't demand uh, bona fides. Uh, we waved away problems on a polygraph. Uh, we ignored the fact that we're getting virtually uh, useless production out of these cases. Uh, we were operating for the sake of operating. We wanted to have Cuban assets. And so we were blinded to the fact that they weren't any good. And so what years would this have been, this, this, this Cuban? Is this like... Um, 70s, 80s, 90s, when are we talking? Yeah, this was basically from the beginning of uh, Castro's regime in 1959 up until when we discovered it in about uh, 1980. <clears throat> and we so, discovered it because of a, a walk-in that I had when I was chief of station in Vienna, a Cuban intelligence officer uh, walked in and uh, when we were debriefing him, uh, he told us about Philip Agee but he also told us that the Cubans had owned us. And he told us that all 38 of these cases that we thought we'd recruited were in fact bad. It was an absolute 
nightmarish uh, revelation for us. Uh, one so, of the low points in my career. So I, I have to ask, we um, people hearing this are going to go, ah, see, the Cubans were behind JFK. They were tied up in some of that stuff. They were better than us. Uh, what would you say to that? Could you repeat that, Ryan? I didn't yeah, yeah. That. As you talk about the Cubans besting our intelligence, yeah. um, people could hear that and go, well, perhaps the Cubans actually were behind JFK. They were behind some of those operations. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I don't want to go there too deeply. <laughs> uh, it's uh it, it's it's pretty pretty sensitive pretty murky but i will say this if there are things about the jfk assassination that are still unknown and i think that's a possibility i think that the unknown would be related to cuba interesting you know so it's well known that lee harvey oswald went to mexico city shortly before the assassination and why to meet with the cubans and castro had grounds to go after Kennedy because he knew through the double agents and other sources that the Kennedy brothers were trying to kill him. As you probably remember, he even told an American journalist, you take the message back to the Kennedy brothers. This is a two-way street. And what they're doing can fire, backfire on them. Uh, so I, I don't have specific information I'm willing to share. But I believe that uh, it's not impossible that the Cubans had more of a hand in the assassination than we realize. Yeah. My hope is, is that when finally uh, we have a change of regimes in Cuba and Cuba opens up, we'll get access to their people, to their archival information from the intelligence services. We'll probably find out some shocking things about what the Cubans have been doing to us. Interesting. So I, I don't have any hesitation in and uh, putting Cuba as the third counterintelligence threat that we face after first the Chinese and then the Russians. Let's go to Russia next. Russia, um, okay, so prior to maybe the, the current invasion in Ukraine, you know, um, you, you have the Russia, the Cold War era with Russia, um, and then you have kind of this NATO uh, expansion and Russia kind of, you know, saber rattling and i'll be honest i didn't think putin was going to invade ukraine um, i thought he was more saber rattling he's kind of moved in so russia has really dominated the the news when the wall fell what happened to the russian intelligence apparatus it didn't really change uh, change names it uh, divided into uh, external and internal but a lot of the same people just rolled over into the so-called democratic intelligence services, the SVR and the FSB. Uh, GRU is state of constant, the military intelligence service. And their espionage activity against the United States continued. You know, Rick Ames rolled right over from the KGB to the SVR. So they didn't really stop spying on the United States. In fact, the level of Russian espionage in the United States today I think it's as high or higher than ever was during the Cold War. Vladimir Putin is obsessed with America. And he wants to have spies inside the United States. So we have to take the Russian counterintelligence threat very seriously, which we do. But I can tell you that what the Russians are doing, as bad as it is inside the United States, pales in comparison to what the Chinese are doing. The Chinese 
spying is several magnitudes greater than anything the Russians ever did. It's unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it. it the Chinese yeah. are mounting an intelligence assault on the United States, and they are winning, unfortunately. The is, cyber, is that, is the cyber Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so when you say that, that's one to clarify the mag- orders of magnitude. Is that a number of spies? Is that a number of like uh, attacks through computers, uh, programs? Like, what, what do you when you say that? What does that mean? It's a lot of things. First of all, it is sheer numbers. They are flooding intelligence operators in the United States. Secondly, their cyber is absolutely magnificent in terms of how effective it is. They're really good at it, and they're throwing just tremendous resources into it. So overall, the Chinese targeting the United States is massive and it is relentless and unfortunately very, very effective. Now we catch a Chinese spy here and there, we slap them on the wrist, but they don't really pay any big price to it. You know, trade continues. Uh, There are a lot of people that kind of soft pedal our relations to China. So they're getting away with it. China long ago decided that its goal was to catch up with the United States, technologically, militarily, industrially, economically. They decided way back in the early 1980s that the way to do that was espionage. And so they have devoted tremendous uh, effort into penetrating the United States. They go after the traditional espionage targets of political and military intelligence, but there's no question, it is a a fact that the overriding objective of Chinese espionage is to steal Western technology. And in the first place to steal American technology. That is their number one objective. And they're doing it. I can't think of a single significant Chinese weapon system that is not based wholly or primarily on uh, stolen U.S. technology. I've been working through I, I started reading it last year and I put it down and I picked it back up, but um, it's, I think about Peter Martin. Yeah. Peter Martin, China's civilian army, the making of wolf warrior diplomacy and going through that and, and listening to how the Chinese have um, <clears throat> built up their, their diplomats over the year and how they train them, condition them and really kind of own them for lack of a, a better term. It was kind of, it was, it was very interesting in, I, I don't think in the West, it, it's kind of hard for us to, you know, we think about Democrat talking points or Republican doc talking points. I think we kind of miss the fact that they have a party's talking points and it's getting pounded over and over and over again, wherever they're at in the world. And even when they're out of country, uh, the Chinese diplomats are very tight on what they can say, what they can express and what they can do. And so, um, they seem to have a very tight grasp, at least with their public officials, I'm guessing on their spies as well, as, as far as what's allowable and what's not allowable. Sure, they're very disciplined. You know, it's a totalitarian, Stalinist regime. So their control over the intelligence services is total. Uh, but they have really good people. They're dedicated. They're well-trained. Uh, they're highly motivated. Uh, and... They do use diplomatic cover in the United States, of course. They have an awful lot of people under diplomatic cover at their embassy and their consulates up at the United Nations. And they have diplomatic immunity. And so they can operate uh, without fear of arrest and imprisonment. 
<clears throat> that's not all they do. They are using student covers a lot to get into our college campuses. The United States University campus is becoming a major venue of Chinese espionage, particularly in the big research universities. And so they'll, they'll steal anything that is better than what the Chinese are doing. You know, it's just not military secrets, military technology. They go after industrial processes. <clears throat> they go after agricultural technology. They go after medical technology. They go after any kind of research that is superior to what they have available. They decided uh, that it is a lot faster and a lot cheaper to steal American research and technology, American trade secrets, than to do the R&D themselves. And they're doing it. If I could start my career all over again, Ryan, and I would love to, I would uh, try to get into the CIA's uh, China program. I would learn Mandarin and I'd become a China counterintelligence specialist because that's the future. That is without any question, the uh, long-term national security threat to the United States. How do you detect a student that is a spy? It's very, very hard. Uh, we just had a successful prosecution in Chicago of a student at Illinois Institute of Technology who was uh, working for the Chinese intelligence service. Very, very hard because uh, it's hard to get the evidence. Um, they're very subtle, very sophisticated. What they do is in many cases, encourage Chinese students to come to the United States. You know, there are about 400,000 Chinese students in the United States and the large majority of them are in science and technology areas that are directly supportive of the Chinese military or the industrial apparatus. And they encourage them to stay in the United States. And then once they get their degrees to get hired by an American company and American companies are short of engineers. And so they will hire these, these Chinese students. And once they get sponsored by an American high-tech company, say for example, they get their PRA status, they get green cards. And five years of green card, U.S. citizenship. Five years of U.S. citizenship, eligibility for a top secret code word U.S. government security clearance. So think about it, you gotta be patient, but that is a glide path that inserts people into our government, into our national laboratories, into our high-tech companies, into our universities. And it's one that the Chinese, of course, have not overlooked. And so they are using student covers very, very aggressively. So let's parse this out. You got the military technology, or weapons technology is one thing. Agricultural technology, though. Obviously, I'm not condoning theft, but isn't that more harmless? China can't feed its own people right now. So someone goes, yeah, they're still in ag tech. Okay, but they can't feed their own people. If this helps them feed their own people, what's the big concern with that kind of technology theft? Well, there's a lot that's wrong with it because agriculture is strategic. It goes to your, your, your strength as a nation, how well you are uh, providing agricultural uh, products to your, to your people. Uh, and it also enables them to do 
agriculture more cheaply, which allows them to divert, divert uh, financial resources elsewhere. In my home state of Iowa, uh, agricultural powerhouse, we're very proud of what we're doing. Two Chinese spies were caught out in a cornfield digging up advanced hybrid corn seeds because they were producing yields far superior to what the Chinese could do on their own. And that's protected technology. That's a trade secret. That's not exportable. Um, and so it's proprietary to the, the manufacturer. Uh, that's espionage. Uh, so there's an awful lot of that. And then of course, in the medical sector, you can make the same argument. Well, why shouldn't we support their being able to care for their people uh, better than they are right now by stealing our technology? Shouldn't we just share it with them? Well, I don't think so. I think that we've invested a lot in our R&D. It's uh, part of our national treasure that we have devoted to building up our medical technology. I don't think we should give it away. And I don't think we should allow it to be stolen. Uh, you know, in Houston, uh, we just shut down the, uh, not too long ago, the FBI shut down the, uh, the Chinese consulate. And why did they do that? Because the Chinese were using the consulate in, in uh, Houston for espionage purposes. The MSS was having a field day. And you ask yourself, well, what would be their targets in a place like Houston? Well, think about it. There are many targets there. It's a target-rich environment for Chinese intelligence. You've got the oil and gas sector. You've got NASA. You've got MD Anderson. You've got universities. It's a, it's a place where the Chinese intelligence services were, in fact, very, very active. So you have the intelligence agents, which U.S., Russian, Cuban, Chinese are going to be some of the most uh, devoted, hardened people to flip, I'd imagine that there are, um, because of what they're doing. But what do you say about the argument um, with the overall Chinese population that that keeping that 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 doing things uh, that allows China to stay shut in or Cuba to stay shut in um, helps the top-down messaging that produces the type of people that want to harm America? So by doing things that allow them to have more wealth, more freedom, it might actually cost the Chinese or the Cubans, if you will, um, the, the control that they're looking for. Not buying it. Not buying it. Why? <laughs> you know, I heard that argument all through the Cold War. You know, let's civilize them through trade, by sharing, by openness, by, in effect, uh, conciliation. Uh, no, these people hate us. They are our rivals. And so I'm not in, in favor of uh, soft peddling what the Chinese are doing or the Russians are doing. Uh, these, are, these are bad people who wish us ill. And so I'm not interested in helping them in any way. Um, you know, it's, it's hard line, but I've spent my career in counterintelligence. I know what these people are capable of. And so uh, I think we're in an espionage war with these people. And we're in it to win it. And uh, so we need to use very aggressive techniques against the Russians and the Chinese. And I, I'm against anything that even could be remotely considered uh, appeasing uh, these dictatorships. Um, we've, got, we've, got our, we've got a war on our hands, an espionage war. And uh, our job is to prevail against our enemies. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not interested in assisting them 
in any way or, or trying to civilize them because they're not, they're not going to change their colors simply because we're trying to play nice with them. So, okay. So let me, I, let me ask, I don't play, I don't play nice with dictators. <laughs> so let me ask this question. Maybe this will make sure uh, to get your thoughts. So would you agree that North Korea is the most closed off country in the, in the world right now? It probably, yeah. you know, it's unfair, but I would say that if any whole country could be described as psychotic, it would be North Korea. Right. And so I would argue that the North Koreans are closed off because they understand that they have to control the narrative to control their people. Um, the Chinese tried to open up, and when they did, they created all these billionaires, and these billionaires started questioning things, um, they, asking the questions that, that they don't like. And so whether or not the CCP likes us or not, it seems that these top-down regimes – what they're afraid of is people questioning them, not necessarily pro-USA or anti-USA. USA could be irrelevant. They're afraid of them, their people asking the questions that they don't want asked, saying the things that they don't want to ask. And so, you know, from a from a counterintelligence or an intelligence standpoint, it would seem that they're telling us what they're afraid of. And what they're afraid of is their people asking questions of themselves. Um, and so if you go back to, to China, <clears throat> about the Peter Martin's book or Edgar Snow, you know, during some of the Mao's lowest points, he would point to Taiwan as an enemy, a threat. Uh, and so he'd rally the troops by, by creating these, these enemies outside. And so whether put aside the, the good naturedness of it, to me, it would seem that they are afraid of people thinking and asking questions, U.S. aside. That's why I'm curious why you're so opposed to it, because that's the thing that they don't want. They don't want their people asking questions. They don't want this discussion happening in China. Um, so if we can if we can figure out a way to allow that discussion to happen, um, that's the thing that they've told us they're afraid of. So why would we not try to facilitate that? that so that's, that's why I get torn in this debate. Well, it's not within our power to break the, the control that police states have over their people, the way they stifle dissent. Look at Putin. If you speak up against Putin, there's a good chance you're gonna end up dead. You know, look at Yandarbiev, look at Polikovskaya, look at Litvinenko, look at the Skripalos, look at uh, Nemtsov, look at Navalny. Uh, they are absolutely crushing any kind of dissent. And what China is doing in crushing dissent is even more outrageous, um, more cruel. Uh, you cannot be, you cannot express any political opposition in a police state. Uh, that's not something we can affect. Uh, they've made that decision that they're, they are going to be a totalitarian repressive regime. Uh, the cost of dissent in China is, is prison or worse. Uh, you cannot stand up to the CCP. Uh, and their cruelty is obvious. You know, look at what they did in Tibet and are still doing in Tibet. Look at what they're doing to the Uyghurs. Uh, looking to look, look what they're doing to their own political and religious uh, dissent inside the country. Um, it's cruel. It's vicious, and uh, we can't change that. You know, it's a good thing that some information seeps in, but uh, it's unrealistic to think that there's going to be some kind of a a domestic force that rises up and replaces that uh, Stalinist leadership. It's just not going to happen. 
Okay. You mentioned the Uyghurs real quick. We had on someone a while back, and he he argued, not in defense of the CCP, but just saying that the CCP's what got the Uyghurs on the radar was that the CIA had used the Uyghurs in Syria or something. Is there any any truth to that? Any connection with the CIA and the Uyghurs? You know, I can't I can't speak to what's going on at the CIA now, but that strikes me as as, as probable nonsense. You know, some kind of absurd justification that the Chinese would use in clamping down on the Uyghurs. Yeah, that, that's what I figured, but because I've never heard anyone else articulate it, but is that uh, you, know, so, you, you can forget that line. It's, okay, uh, we'll cut, not, we'll cut that one valid, out. Not okay, a valid, it's not a valid <laughs> argument. You know, right. they, they, are, they are just repressing and, and uh, forcing the Uyghurs into slave labor because they're Muslims, because they are dissenters, because they do not subscribe to the tenets of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you know, and it's... Uh, I think it's uh, it's criminal what they're doing to the Uyghurs. Absolutely, the world doesn't I, even know doesn't I, even know, know the extent of it. You know, millions of people in forced labor camps. You know, uh, their their mosques being destroyed, their their people disappearing, executions. Uh, we don't even know how bad it is, but it's 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 awful what the uh, what the Uyghurs are going undergoing, and the world is basically uh, silent because we we don't have enough information. And we don't take on the Chinese. Uh, well, you know, shame on us. To, to that to... point, when when uh, the Chinese at the UN last year said, "Hey, come check, a, come take a look," I made a point of saying that President Biden should say, "Okay, great, I'm going to lend Air Force One to a team of diplomats, and we're going to fly over there today." And everyone's like, "Oh, that's not how that stuff works." I'm like, "Yeah." See, the Chinese are actually what they're doing is they know that you won't respond that way. What you have to do yeah. is say, "Okay, cool, we're going to be there tomorrow." Who do we meet? Where do we go? And then make them say no. And then when they say no, then you can then you can start attacking them for for lying, for being fraudulent. But you don't. You say, well, we'll look into it. We'll put a committee. You don't need to do all that. Get some diplomats on a plane, and they'll say you can't come. And to me, that's the whole diplomacy game at that level is so infuriating because there, it's just talking. There's no one really looking to do anything. And so um, I have been very critical of. Um, uh, we, we did an episode, I'll link to it in the show notes, uh, with uh, Sean Roberts on his book, The War on the Uyghurs. And so very critical of how the world the world has handled that issue. Okay, but let me ask you this. Let's pivot to something a little bit more sinister, I guess, if you will. What's it like to catch a spy? It's uh, exhilarating. You know, I spent much of my career as a spy catcher, and I can tell you from personal experience that nothing in the intelligence uh, field compares to catching an American trader and putting that trader away for a long period of time in prison. Did most of them that you caught, did they know it was coming? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that they thought that they were uh, successful in deceiving us, getting away with it, Um, but they weren't. You know, counterintelligence is tenacious. Uh, we never give up. Uh, we're getting better. There was a period when counterintelligence was very weak. I think we're stronger now, not strong enough, but uh, we've got some really smart people working in counterintelligence today. And that's what counterintelligence really boils down to. It's a, it's a matching of wits. So if you're a U.S. counterintelligence officer, you're competing against some of the best minds in Russian intelligence, Cuban intelligence, Chinese intelligence. And our job is to win, is to beat them. 
uh, that's a real challenge. It's uh, something that um, those of us who go into counterintelligence really welcome. Uh, we like uh, puzzles. We like solving mysteries. We like uh, unraveling threads. And that's what counterintelligence is. It's, uh, it's a long process, but extremely rewarding. And I make the point in To Catch a Spy that counterintelligence people are a special breed. Uh, I'm honored to have been part of that breed. Uh, we're a family. Uh, I don't care whether you're from the CIA or the FBI or the military or any other part of the United States intelligence community. We're the same people. We do what we do for the same reasons. And counterintelligence as a profession is thankless because we're not popular. I mean, we're, we're the bad news bearers. When we walk in the door, it's not going to be good. Uh, and so people tend to resist what we're trying to do. And when we score, when we catch a spy, which is good, what's the reaction? Okay. Uh, it was your job in counterintelligence to have prevented that from happening in the first place. <laughs> so that's yeah. a failure. Yeah. And yeah. secondly, they hit us with, what took you so long? Mm. Why did it take you nine years to catch Rick Ames? Why did Anna Montez get away with it for, for 20 years? Uh, why did Conrad stay in place for about the same length of time? Uh, so you really can't win, but that's no reason why we not, we're not out there every day doing our best to catch spies. And when you get one, Ryan, hallelujah. It's like uh, uh, the, the best thing you could ever possibly have. I just interviewed uh, Lise Wheel on her book on Robert Hansen. Uh, it hasn't been released, but it will be by the time this podcast comes out with me and you. Um, and in the process, I don't, I don't, did you work on the Hansen case at all? Uh, peripherally, yes, I did. And I was involved in it in this aftermath. Okay. Yeah. And so they got, uh, was it Victor Long? I'm trying to think the guy's name that they got that wasn't, that wasn't tied up with it. Um, and, and so I, we're, we're talking about that. When you think, when you suspect in this case, Bob Hanson or whoever it is, is a spy. So the, the alarm bells are going off. Right. And so I think from my understanding of that story, the FBI, their, their operatives are getting killed. So they knew there had to be a mole. How do you balance the ha I'm a hammer everyone's a nail mentality. How do you watch out from getting the wrong person? We are bound by, of course, laws. We protect Americans' privacy and civil liberties. Uh, we have to have uh, some methods of uh, doing our job. And so, but those are all legal. Um, but it's really tough. You know, there were a lot of people that I wanted to investigate that I couldn't, you know, I had bad feelings about them, mm. but I couldn't put surveillance on somebody. I couldn't tap their phones. Uh, I couldn't put uh, cameras in their offices. Willy nilly, you've got to have probable cause. You've got to have a FISA finding. Uh, so we protect the rights of American people. And that's good. I'm all for that. But it doesn't necessarily make our job in counterintelligence easier mm. because we've got to reach a certain threshold. Um, when we were looking for the mole inside the CIA, who was responsible for all the 1985 losses, it was a tough haul because we had lots of people who had the requisite access who could have done it. And the kind of investigative techniques that we would like to have used were limited by, by law. 
And so we couldn't just uh, go out and uh, surveil everybody, get into their financial records, monitor their travel records. We couldn't do that without probable cause. So it really slowed the process down. But I'm glad we're that way. I'm glad we have uh, protections for civil liberties and, uh, and privacy. Um, so when you uh, know that you have a problem, and of course the FBI uh, had reason to believe from a source that there was somebody who was passing information from inside US counterintelligence, uh, it begins a lengthy painstaking process of sorting through the chaff and getting to the, the, the nuggets that will take you to the right person. Um, now I'll tell you this about counterintelligence and most people don't understand it, but the best counterintelligence is penetration. For every American who is betraying us as a spy, there are members of that foreign intelligence service who know the identity of that American. And our job is to go find those people and to recruit them. And so I'd like to see us be a lot more aggressive in going after foreign intelligence officers, Russian intelligence officers, Chinese intelligence officers, and Cuban across the board, because they can identify the spies or they have tidbits, little pieces about what that spy was doing that put us on the right track. I do an exercise in my intelligence classes, my counterintelligence classes, specifically at the Bush School, where I say, name an American spy that we have caught, where there was not a source somewhere in the equation, a penetration. And it's hard to do because almost in every case, we catch people because we have a source who puts us on the right uh, trail. Um, so I'd like to see us be even more aggressive. I'd like us to, what I call hanging out the shingle, advertise. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you are a foreign intelligence officer in China, Russia, or elsewhere, and you know the identity of American spies, call this number. <laughs> we can make a deal. American counterintelligence is open for business. And guess what? We have deep pockets. And so we will pay a lot if, uh, if necessary, if you can help us identify an American spy. So that's, that's, that's my call to human intelligence officers. You need to help us in counterintelligence by going out, going out and recruiting these people. Get in their face, you know, cold pitching, put a lot of money on the table. Let's get them in. Yeah. And if you need a spokesperson to head that up, I'll take a small stipend to, to help recruit those people. So <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you this. How many of your students are you concerned or spies learning from you on how not to duplicate the mistakes of past predecessors? Well, it's a very rewarding second career, Ryan. I love it. Uh, the Bush School has an intelligence studies program, which I think is second to none. And our job is to assist these fine young men and women who come to us because they want to serve our country in intelligence careers. And our job is to prepare them as, as best we can. We think we're performing a very valuable service at Texas A&M and at the Bush School specifically in sending those people out in the front lines. Our country has never had a greater need for good intelligence. It's never had a greater need for good counterintelligence. The Bush School is doing its part because it is sending them out. Uh, so I want them to be well-trained. Uh, and the Bush School does so many different things that those who are going into spy careers, even undercover, 
uh, are kind of lost in the the numbers. Mm. And so I don't think that the fact that you studied to the Bush School is in any way going to uh, limit your your career options. How many foreign spies, if you had to guess, are in the U.S. right now? Oh, my gosh. Um, Thousands. Less than 10,000? Yep. Realistically, yes, because they just simply cannot handle uh, numbers that large. But uh, yeah, less than 10,000, but thousands. And how many do we catch every year? Yeah. One of my it's favorite authors. So it's unlikely for someone like me, just in my everyday life, to come across a spy then. I'm not in D.C. I'm in a rural part of Texas, so probably not a spy around me. Well, I wouldn't be too surprised. Uh, anywhere where you have high-tech corporations, where you have universities, where you have anything the Chinese want, for example, there's a good chance that somebody will be there operating as a spy. Uh, yeah, there, there are there. One of my favorite authors is a British author named Rebecca West, who wrote extensively on intelligence. And she said that spying is like an iceberg. And an iceberg has only about one eighth of its mm-hmm. size visible above the water and seven eighths of it are below. She said, that's what espionage is. We only know about the top one eighth, but underneath the water, there's a seven eighth that's going on there that we don't know about. And of course the job of counterintelligence is to go underwater and to blow up that seven eighths and to find those uh, yet uncovered spies. Uh, it's a, something that torments me. It should torment every active duty counterintelligence officer that there are uncaught spies out there. Uh, so if you got people listening to, to this uh, podcast who are at all inclined to, to join us in counterintelligence, uh, please, please, please consider it. We need reinforcements. We need our best young people to step forward to do this kind of work. It's not easy, but it is very valuable work for our country and very, very rewarding. Yes, yeah, so we unpack that. What ages would they hire? College degrees? What would what would the process be for someone who goes, yeah, I'm interested? If you're interested, <clears throat> you're probably going to need something more than just a bachelor's degree. Uh, so you, you're probably either going to have to have military service or overseas work experience or, and in most cases, an advanced degree in a field that is relevant. And so uh, come to the Bush School or go to some other program elsewhere and study national security, study intelligence, learn foreign languages, uh, go into the military, serve our country in that capacity. Uh, We want you to be a little bit older. And so by spending a couple of years in grad school, a couple of years in the military will make you a much stronger candidate. And most of these programs, including ours, will facilitate the interviews with the recruiters from across the intelligence community. Uh, but we're more open in how we recruit now. And I can speak uh, most knowledgeably about the CIA. Uh, the CIA is looking for good quality uh, young people who want to do this kind of work. And so we have a website and we encourage people to check out the website, uh, CIA.gov. It's not complicated. <laughs> and we list the openings, what the criteria are, what their qualifications are. And if you think you're a fit and you're interested in doing that kind of work, you're encouraged to submit electronic resume. 
And if uh, that electronic resume is of interest to the intelligence community, then you're going to get contacted and that can start the process. Uh, okay. All right. Final question for you. Um, what's the one question during your career that you didn't get answered that you wish you could have gotten answered, whether it be a you know case, a question about something, obviously I'm sure there's something you can't speak about, but the things you can't speak about. Yeah. I think, uh, the number one question is uh, why are we viewed the way we are by so much of the American population? Uh, many people in America think that we are undermining uh, the civil liberties of the American people. They think we're not good people. They think that we're violating human rights. And that's the farthest thing from the truth. And I didn't really understand that. Um, I, I didn't get asked that question enough uh, so I could explain who we are, why we do what we do. We view, we view ourselves as, as patriotic Americans who are serving our country in a very, very a vital area. Um, another, another question I never fully understood was how any American could sink so, so low to betray our country. And most of the people that I'm familiar with who fight against us did it for crass motives, for money. And that's, for me, contemptible. Uh, I cannot think of a lower form of human life, frankly, than someone like a Bob Hansen or a Rick Ames or an Anna Montez. Anna Montez claimed that she did it for ideological reasons, but that's no excuse for, for betraying our country. Um, so I never fully understood why so many Americans will sell us out, will betray us. In my career, I looked at and was familiar with hundreds of cases of Americans who were involved in espionage against our country. Uh, it's a sickening proposition to realize that there are people out there who will do that kind of thing. But all the more reason why we have an obligation, morally and professionally, to catch them to stop them, to prevent these foreign intelligence services from stealing our technology, or getting into our databases, uh, stealing our secrets, enough's enough. I'm tired of it. And so that's why I wrote to, to Catch a Spy. I want us to do a better job of, uh, of catching spies than we're doing right now. Well, I will link to the book, of course, and the Bush uh, School in the show notes, I did I did peruse CIA.gov. I do not qualify for any of the cool positions, so I won't be I won't be joining you in the counterintelligence position. But That's what they all say, say Ryan. <laughs> maybe I am a spy. Maybe this was a, maybe this was a setup here. So, where else would you like to send people to the Bush School, the book? Where else? Where else would I like? Yeah, if, if viewers want to find out more about what you're doing, the Bush School, the book. You got Check the book. out the Bush School's website if you're interested in expanding your credentials. If you're a young person who would like to do this kind of thing, I think you'll like what you see. Uh, learn or perfect a foreign language. It's a big difference maker in who gets into the intelligence community. And get involved in public service in one form or another, volunteer groups, uh, civic groups because we're looking for people who have a heart to serve, who are really motivated by a desire to 
to help our country, to help other people. And if you've never done that, then there's going to be questions about how, how pure your motives really are. So there are a lot of things that you can do to enhance your, your credentials. If you're still in school, obviously you got to make grades uh, <laughs> because all of these jobs are very competitive and uh, you're going to need uh, good grades to, to be considered uh, eligible. And then another thing I'll say, and this is kind of gratuitous because I'm sure your listeners aren't in this category. But if you're a young person and you aspire one day to serving our country in any capacity, but specifically in intelligence or counterintelligence communities, stay clean. Uh, stay away from those high risk activities that are out there that are making you ineligible for ever, ever having a position of trust in the United States government. It's sad to me, Ryan, when I see young people who decide that they would like to serve our country, but have made stupid decisions when they were 17, 18, 19, 20, or even older uh, that disqualify them. Uh, you know, so drugs and alcohol and any kind of crime, uh, theft, uh, fraud, stealing, um, those are things that are gonna disqualify you. It's a rigorous process to get cleared. And so you don't wanna have any uh, major skeletons in your closet. Uh, when you apply for one of these sensitive positions. Okay. Well, Jim, it was great. Enjoyed the conversation. I did too. Any, any upcoming books you got working on or any, any projects for us to look forward to? Well, you know, I, I've officially retired from the Bush school. I, I have a merit status. Um, I do a lot of speaking. I still do some teaching at the Bush school, particularly in counterintelligence. Uh, but it's crossed my mind that I might have another book in me, but, uh, and I've got some ideas. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna reveal what they are now because it's a competitive field. Mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, there's some things that I think uh, need to be written that haven't been written yet. So stay tuned. Who knows? But uh, I'm proud of Fair Play, and I'm proud of uh, To Catch a Spy because those were two areas in my career that I really wanted to to focus on and to, for whatever was worth, share with people on the basis of my many years of experience. Uh, the moral aspects of what we do, I consider very important. Then also, I just felt compare my experiences in counterintelligence with the future practitioners, anybody who likes just likes spy stories, students, uh, even even professionals in the field now, I think can benefit. It's been very gratifying to find that my book, To Catch a Spy, is being used in training classes uh, throughout the intelligence community, and that's. Uh, that's something that I, I, uh, I'm very proud of too. Okay. Well, we'd love to get you on again in the future, especially if you have a new book coming out. Thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you.